0: that's what we said to um to our midwife actually when we were expecting luca that um, most of the time you have two people making love to conceive a child and in our case there was four people making love to conceive a child so Mm -hmm. even more people (laughs) involved even more
1: love (laughs) hey everyone welcome back to the big blend the podcast about merging cultures identity and transmission today's guests are anna and tanya one is australian the other one is french they have a little boy together and they live in berlin For those of you who are listening for the first time, you can discover the story behind the podcast in the first episode, The Prologue. Before we start, let me tell you a little bit about Anna and Tanya. So Anna grew up in France and Tanya grew up in Australia. They both work in the world of arts and culture. In 2016, Anna moved to Sydney for work. There, she met Tanya at the Sydney Opera House. A few years later, they had a son together, who is now two years old, and today the three of them live in Berlin, Germany. I wanted to interview them because on top of being a multicultural family, they're an unconventional type of family, and I wanted to dig into the subject of transmission when more people are involved in the conception of a child. Hi Anna, hi Tanya. Hi Hi Maria. I want to start by asking you, Anna, where do you come from? So I come from France. Okay. And Tanya?
2: I come from Sydney, Australia. But
1: I can see you have origins. You have other origins, Tanya, as well.
2: I do. I don't know how visible uh, my Swiss-German heritage is, but my great-grandfather was Chinese. So in some ways, I'm a typical Australian with roots from Asia and Europe.
1: Are your home countries important to you? Today, you're not living in your home countries. Do Do you feel attached to your cultures, to your roots?
0: Uh, yes, very much actually. The first thing that comes to mind when you say that is that even though I've lived in Sydney for five years and I live in Berlin, Tanya always says that I, the way I speak is very French. Like, even though I speak in English, obviously, a lot of the time, and I work in English, I still build very much my, my, the way I conceive things and the way I express myself. I guess it's very French. So, I guess it's something that is quite important and quite
2: visible, apparently. For me, Australia is very important to me in ways that I didn't. No, until I became an expat, actually. Mm-hmm. So I've always wanted to live in Europe and particularly in a Germanophone place, partly because yeah, my father's Swiss German and I've always felt connected to this part of the world. But now that I live in this part of the world, I realise how deeply connected I am to Australia as well as it turns out.
1: So you met in Sydney and you got together. And then can you tell me a little bit about your decision to have a kid?
0: I think we started talking about kids pretty early on in a sense, like I had always known that I wanted to have children, although quite early on, I was also with women, I think from my early 20s. So I was like, OK, this is going to be a bit of a process and will require some reflection and discussion. And But quite quickly, when I met Tanya, uh, something that was quite clear, I think I read about it, was that Australia is actually an amazing place for... For rainbow families. Everything is much easier. Conception lack the rights for these families and everything is quite easy. Yeah, it's absolutely true that Australia is one of the most um, welcoming countries, I guess, for rainbow families. A rainbow family is usually used to describe a family where at least one
1: parent is gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, trans or intersex.
0: I was saying that I was really keen to have kids and, and that maybe while we're in Australia, maybe we should think about it here and conceive a child here. And tell you, I was like, okay. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think the point that Anna made about having been in relationships with women from her early 20s is relevant because I was in relationships mainly with men before and it had never occurred to me um, that maybe I would have a child with another woman. So when we started talking about it, I was a bit like, but how would we do that?
1: How does it work? <laughs> How does it
2: work? Um, we're missing a very kind of essential ingredient. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it took it took me quite a long time to get my head around what it would be to have a child with someone uh, who's wouldn't be the genetic kind of second parent of the child and what is parenthood anyway. And, uh, yeah, it took me about a year, to be honest, to get my head around what this different type of family would look like and feel like. But the thinking paid off. I think something was that was really important for me, and that's
0: interesting, I guess, in terms of roots and um, identity, was that I, I felt like I couldn't really uh, go down the path of an anonymous donor because I thought if then the child has access to their origin at the age of 18, that's still a very long time to wait until you have a sense of even just a picture, a name, a story behind the conception. So I was really keen on taking the risk to ask someone that we knew to be part of this journey, rather than um, going, I guess, in the direction of a safer yeah, a safer, a safer option that would have been a clinic with an anonymous donor. So that was one thing that was also part of the conversation then, which explained why it took us quite a while as well to, to be ready to, to find find the right,
2: right,
0: find the right guy. In in our situation, but again, that's just us. There are two mothers and there's a friend and his girlfriend, actually, who are very much part of this journey. And we have a close relationship to them now. And we really want Luca to grow knowing knowing him and knowing Ruby as well, his girlfriend. And with this idea that he could spend time with them whenever he wants to. And that might also be something that connects him even more to Australia, because his donor is very Australian, like he serves every day. (laughs) He's, uh, he's very connected to the land.
1: That's even more people transmitting bits of the, yeah, of the culture.
0: Yeah, that's what we said to, um, to a midwife, actually, when we were expecting Luca, that most of the time you have two people making love to conceive a child. And in our case, there was four people making love to conceive a child. So. Mm even more people involved even more love <laughs> yeah uh but that's just
1: for me i don't think i'll put it in the podcast i'm just curious to know how did you choose the friend so, so the
2: subject is transmission right yes yeah. well i think that like i mean it's all about transmission the the process
1: okay then let me ask the question again
2: <laughs> so how did you choose that friend <laughs> Um, I think there are two things to say about it. And first of all, it has to be someone who is going to be comfortable with the process of, so for us, we wanted to do it naturally. And so that meant that it could possibly have taken quite a long time. And when I say naturally for the listeners, I mean, turkey based and naturally. Well, you have to explain that expression Um, to them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) the turkey baster method is the most commonly used method of artificial insemination at home. So basically, you do the insemination yourself. You use a syringe to inject sperm near the cervix.
0: We did inseminations at home. Yes. So we needed to have someone who was, yeah, uh, happy to make themselves available, I guess, uh, every month at a certain time and come over. And we would have a, what we call insemination nights. And we would have like a glass of wine, some cheese, (laughs) like like things really. And at some point we'll all be like, well, maybe it's time to move to the next (laughs) stage of our evening and we would let Lucien and his girlfriend in our apartment and go on the rooftop. And when they would be done, they would text us and we would come down again and they would leave and we would do the inseminations. So that was a very, very artisanal, way (laughs) but yeah yeah, to find someone who's keen to do it this way and who i think the donor we found is a truly exceptional because he's also a scientist and a scientist who's kind of specialized actually in um microbiology microbiology so he's he's like making tests of all sorts and he's also planting
2: trees along the roads they're very close to earth and the cycles of nature and like he plants seeds of all these interesting heritage apples to then kind of experiment with you know how that would take and fertilization and things like that like it's somehow um, Mm -hmm. an extension of his kind of scientific practice in a way as we got to know him better and better cannot imagine a human another human on this planet whom i would prefer to have shared this process with and like We grow up with his son in some ways. Do you mean we? His his son grows up with us in our family. His biological son, and everything that I know about Lucien makes me so joyous that that is true. He's not in our couple, but everything about him—if any of it is genetic—and then has come through to our son—we are overjoyed about it.
1: So we have genetics, and on the other side, do you ask? Him and his girlfriend to transmit things to Luca specifically. Do they have a role?
0: I think we kind of um, talked about the relationship between the two of them. I mean, Lucian and Luca being really theirs in a sense that Luca is, for the time being, too small to to really have a sense of it and and wanting to have contacts with him and everything. But we really think that if Luca is keen to to spend time with him, to call him from time to time, to visit him sometime in Australia. That is something we would very much encourage. And Lucien has told us he would be very happy
2: to to do that as well. So I think the relationship that they will build is really, really belong to them. Yeah, like in terms of him being another tie to Australia, Lucien really is the best of Australia. He has such a beautiful connection to the indigenous people of australia through the scientific work that he's done and yeah to, and really mm. to the land on so many levels mm. if luca were to discover about that part of his heritage through this person i mean again i couldn't imagine a better sort of conduit for that you found yourself a gem oh, do, oh mm-hmm. man oh, yeah. we did
1: When Luca arrived, how did you set the strategy when it comes to the languages spoken at home?
0: That's uh, an interesting question because that has been evolving, obviously, since being in Germany. So we moved to Germany when he was one. But when he was born, we were in Australia. We didn't have a sense of where we would live after Sydney and how long we would stay in Sydney for. We were living very much in a Anglophone bubble. Like I was working in English. We were spending most of our time with Tanya's friends. We, we speak English together most of the time. And I came to a point where French was really at the back of my mind most of the time. I've started, you know, making mistakes that I hadn't done since I was seven and mm-hmm. uh, and saying weird things as well. Friends would tell me, but why do you say that? Like, we don't say that. And so when he was born, I was like, but we spent our life in English. We speak English together. Does that mean that I'm going to struggle to pass on my language? And actually, as soon as he was born, like literally the minute he was born, it didn't cross my mind to speak anything else but French
2: to him. So French has really, it's obviously the language that I speak to him and that I want to speak to him. And that is not at all my experience with English. I started speaking a lot of French to him from from when he was born as well, very unexpectedly or strangely.
0: As if the language of the couple was English, but the language
2: of the family is French. Yes. I think there was a really deep part of me that just wanted to support Anna speaking French to him. I mean, it was totally subconscious because when you have a newborn, what is conscious? Nothing um <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's true very instinctive on some level and led to me kind of matching all of the baby speak that i was hearing that i had never heard before i didn't grow up with this obviously and um we didn't have other french friends with babies at the time and so it was all new to me but also instantly endearing and so I spoke a lot of French to him when he was a baby, but as of the last six months or so I've actually consciously tried to make sure I give him English equivalents for everything that we say, which may have led to this interesting language acquisition quirk of his. So when he first started speaking, he would say a word for something like plain was a very early word, but I've been playing. have <laughs> Yeah. So he would say <laughs> the French version, then the English version. He says that for everything. Uh, yeah. He translates himself. <laughs> so when he first started speaking, he repeated himself, and then it sort of evolved in such a way that he kind of over the period of six months and up to now, he's just started identifying the language group of his audience. Mm. So he will speak to Anna's mum in French. He will speak to Australian friends of ours in English. And we were just with some German friends and he speaks German back to them.
0: But just before that, he would speak a mix of the three languages and usually the same word in two or three languages. Okay, so, avion,
2: playing Flugzeug.
1: <laughs> three times now. <laughs> yeah, three times. Exactly.
2: And it's like a game. Like, he sort of looks up and... He's really like, proud of himself. Yeah. I think he's
0: like, I can say it in three languages. I'm going to show you. But in the first place, that wasn't conscious. I think that was just his way of being like, okay, I have two words for something. I'm just going to say
2: both because then they will know what I'm talking about. And everyone kept saying to us, that's really unusual. (laughs) Um, a bilingual kid to sort of to associate two terms with the one object rather than choosing one of the terms between the two languages and then just going with that arbitrarily
1: he created his own system Mm, exactly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what made you now six months ago you said six months ago you switched back to english why what made you
2: do that Oh, out of a feeling, a sense of obligation. Okay, to know two things. First of all, the obligation that, okay, we're trying to raise a bilingual, maybe trilingual kid here. I'm the one bringing the English. I need to actually conscientiously bring the English. And secondly, uh, I don't speak French as a native speaker. I speak very comfortably a lot of the time until... Stop. Oh, I don't know how to say the next line. <laughs> and that's awkward when you're parenting.
0: My German is still not so good after one year. It's kind of conversational, but basic, basic, which is also a fear in, you know, if we stay in Germany for for a while, I have this image that is completely horrific to me. (laughs) I think like a good motivation to learn German really is this image of um, having to
2: rely on your small child to, to, you know, to do something, to do some communication for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I do speak German, but also I didn't grow up in a Germanic, Kind of country like i'm watching him grow up in, in an everyday environment where he speaks german six hours a day and they talk about eating and sleeping and, and they have nursery rhymes and it's a very different experience to the way that i acquired german so my my relationship to the language feels entirely different to the relationship that he has with the language it's just a different intimacy German is much more an intellectual relationship that I have to this language.
0: It's it doesn't really come from the heart, it comes from somewhere else. But my relationship to French has always been really uh important. And then Tanya was like I don't feel that way at all about English. Mm. I remember when Luca was two or three months old, I was saying, I just um really want him to speak this language and know it and and be able to re- to read French and
2: you were like, Oh, I don't I don't feel like that. It's just the intensity is completely different. I really want him to be able to explore English, to be very comfortable in English and also increasingly in Australian English to understand where the humour comes from and the capacity for casualness and friendliness that is inherent in the way that English is used.
1: I'm trying to think of why it is less important and I'm thinking maybe... It's because you know that he will learn English eventually, whereas mm-hmm. French or German, mm-hmm. you could grow up, live your life and work in professional settings without knowing them. So it's like a mm-hmm. maybe it relies on you, whereas English, he will learn it at school. If you don't do it, it's fine. Someone else yeah. will.
2: But not Australian English. Um, not Australian yeah. English. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure not. <laughs>
1: I know Luca is still very young, but uh, apart from the system that he created, where he repeated the same word in different languages, does he ever wonder uh, why he speaks different languages?
0: So he doesn't yet, but something that is a very quite a problem at the moment is that we've noticed that he's, he's quite aggressive at the daycare, which is normal for that age, like between two and three, to be more aggressive and to basically feel like when you reach the
2: limits in terms of words, then you switch to aggressivity. <laughs> he's not particularly aggressive but he has sort of like you see it he gets this rise of frustration Mm. and then if he has nothing to come out with linguistically then he will just sort of slap and we really feel like it's probably a bit connected to the fact that he was um
0: already developing his little system in the two languages Uh and he didn't speak a word of german so i think I think it's a lot at once. It's the richness and all of that. Are we, we're super happy that he speaks three languages. or will. But I think it's in this moment of like really digesting a full language in such a short time, it's a lot for a little costs brain. Him a lot
2: at the moment, I think. This lack of social connection through language, it's a difficult moment in this process of three-language acquisition, I would say.
0: I think it's a matter of months now. Yesterday I was reading a book to him in German and I was like, it's only a matter of weeks for him to say, you so shit at this, you just can't do this. Uh, <laughs> please read something else. We don't really have a strategy yet, but definitely with three languages, I think we'll have to be a bit clever about the choices
2: we make. At some point, yeah. And one of the things that I think is really rich about the childhood that he's having is that it's something which is completely natural to him that... There are many languages in the world and different people speak different languages. That is how the world is. And even though we have so many different cultures represented in Australia, Australia is Anglophone country and it's very easy to grow up in that context without having a sense of what a foreign language is. And I have a lot of experience with that Mm. mentality because of the work that I used to do also because of my lack of inheritance of the Chinese language, so that was literally stamped out by a cultural policy in the sort of early to mid-20th century called the White Australia Policy, which tried to forbid the speaking of, tried to encourage a, a politics of assimilation rather than integration.
1: The White Australia Policy, or the Immigration Restriction Act, was a law passed by the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. The aim of the law was to limit non-white immigration to Australia, particularly Asian immigration and particularly Chinese immigration. These policies, for example, gave British migrants preference over all other migrants. The governments eventually progressively dismantled such policies between 1949 and 1973. So that was sort of pre the celebration
2: of multiculturalism. So, yeah, the fact that what he is experiencing is just diversity from the beginning. And he's embodying that diversity by having these languages grow within him from the start. I think that's pretty great.
1: Moving on to the more administrative uh, stuff, which passports does Luca have?
2: He currently has an australian passport and a swiss passport and and he will have a french
0: passport soon that's actually after a very long process of not being sure that it would be possible it is going to happen so i'm super excited
1: why why did you say it was uh, you weren't sure that he would get it or it was a long difficult process can you tell me a little bit more about that
0: yeah, again on this idea that Australia is incredible for rainbow families, there was absolutely no questions. We were like a gay couple. Uh, one of us was pregnant. They never questioned anything at any point. And when Licky was born, we received a birth certificate with both our names, mother one, mother two. So yes, both. Or just mother and mother. Actually, not even the one or two. Oh. They just do everything really well, very elegantly. And then came France, and I was like he was born before the change of law that happened recently. So the French law has evolved in the past two years. It
1: facilitates medically assisted procreation for women couples and single women. Originally, it was only open to heterosexual couples with infertility problems. So today, it also facilitates affiliation of the kids to both mothers. Just like adoption, they will have to legally declare their affiliation to the child and go through a process, but it is possible and recognized
0: but so at that stage it was not possible it's not really like they've done a good job the consulate in Sydney they were like we really want to help you it's just that the situation you're in has no precedent so we don't really know how this is going to work one of the guys that was really uh, he did this very long I think negotiation and paperwork for them to see that it was possible to have <laughs> to be in this situation of being a, a binational couple conceiving a child in Australia the way we have every step was for the French law was like oh you haven't been into a clinic, oh, okay, we don't have any case of that. It was not fitting in the box and they were like, oh, it doesn't fit in the box. So I can oh, I don't know what to do. But eventually they, they created a box for us. <laughs> Lika will be the first child to have a French passport from this um...
2: constellation. Oh, yeah.
1: Wow. That's historical. You're, you're changing the law.
2: It is historical, actually. <laughs> but it's all actually based on the Australian law that it's possible.
1: Why was it important for you that he has the French passport?
0: It's funny. I in in this long process and in these quests on like transmission and identity, I feel like a lot of things are not really verbally expressed in the first place. Like in this process, I was really upset. I, you know, every time I would write to them, not hear back, be like, "Gosh, I haven't heard anything for two months," and I would be so upset about it. And you know, he has two passport. He was legal in Australia. He's legal in Germany because of his Swiss passport. I could have been like, "It doesn't matter," or like, "It's fine." But I was so upset and I, even now, I'm not quite sure. It's not so clear in my in my mind why it's so important to me. I have glimpses of things that are are important to me. And for example, one of them is voting. Like I have a picture. I was like, if he doesn't get a French passport, he will never be able to vote at a French election. And it's important for me to be like, okay, these are the politicians at the moment. I look forward to introducing him to that. Be like, this is what the landscape looks like. And you can make up your mind and we can vote and we can have a coffee afterwards. I was like, if you don't vote, then it's somehow symbolically you're not invited in in this. You don't feel like you belong.
1: What do you hope that he will answer to the question, where do you come from?
0: I mean, I don't know if I hope for anything, but what I find crazy is that I think most people have a child's and they're like, maybe he's going to be a dentist. Maybe he's going to be a, I don't know, a singer. Blah, blah. You never know what they're going to become. But in our case, I'm like, we don't even know which culture, which language will be his, depending on how long we spend in Germany. We really love Berlin. If we spend, if we live here for 15 years, he will totally be German by then. I feel like we feel the responsibility that depending on the choices we make in terms of jobs and where we go, that will shape his identity and what he calls home. But somehow, I feel like I want him to say Australian. Like I I kind of hope that he will feel Australian.
2: Tanya, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I feel I can really echo Anna's sentiments. It's something that weighs heavily it's it's something that feels like a really big responsibility the fact that that we will make certain choices it could be anything from economical to professional to you know the context of how we kind of live our adult lives and build our family home sort of thing that'll be the basis upon which we make our decisions but then it will shape who he becomes as a human on the basis of his culture
1: Transmission also means passing down other things. In your case, I'm guessing that since you're together, you might be facing maybe some homophobic reactions or just comments. And throughout, you probably learned how to stand up for yourself. You probably, or at least learned how to tell the story, how to live the story, how to be completely yourself. Are you worried that Luca might face reactions from friends at school and so on? Uh, do you prepare him for that? Do you think that your courage or the courage that you've built up throughout the years can be passed down?
0: I think it's it's slightly too soon, but it's coming. In a sense, like you very much see these um, three years old have so many questions about everything. So the only questions we've had so far were from kids of friends of ours who've been like, where's Luca's dad? why does he have two moms, stuff like that. And so that makes you feel like you need to have a very... A narrative that is really easy for kids, mm. for the kids who will ask him for for his questions first, I guess, when when they will come, but also for him to feel really confident. I think it's one of the responsibilities, again, as a rainbow family, as a lesbian couple, to make sure that he has the right words to explain his situation. But the idea that your child could face some homophobic comments or could feel like he's different it's really heartbreaking because it feels like you pass on something that is not his story um, I mean it's his story obviously but it's not his sexuality it's just really hard to accept that it will happen
2: so and I think the most difficult part of forming that narrative for him knowing that when he asks the question as Anna says he'll be a very small child and will have a very straightforward understanding of the world is the lack of basic terminology around the, the the construction of a family as we have created it so basically the lack of simple term for biological father <laughs> you've got mama mama and be your papa like how do you Mm. and and i feel like we are going to need to find a name that has an equivalent sort of a tone because without that we don't get to include what would then be a missing piece like lucien in the creation of his life has been so important he has a presence in his life we exchange photos and videos all the time and so just how to make that bridge is really a question of tonality um language Mm yeah be your papa that's great
1: (laughs) love that what about representation do you have books movies and so on that represent rainbow families
0: yeah we do we do have yeah we have books but and and they're really good because they kind of encompass everything like You know, they're tall people, small people, all sorts of shapes, all colors, all cultures, all Mm sexualities. And so his life will be included in this. And that's kind of,
2: that's good. One of the books that was recommended to us even talks about different methods of conception, as in. (laughs) It's a German book.
0: (laughs) 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 Everything is like, it has to be talked about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: it's, it's been, they're, they're, like we're very fortunate we're very fortunate oh. to exist at a time where this is starting to be normalized in that way um do you want more kids yes we actually
0: would like another one that this time i would carry so that will be again a different story but we have this amazing view baba <laughs> <laughs> this uh, listen is uh, has been incredible and we would love that the two kids, um, you know, be related that way, biologically. But, yeah, I guess it will be an, a different story, again, because it will be a different pregnancy, it will be a different conception because we're not in Australia anymore, different legal framework because we will make this child in Germany, so this baby could be entitled to German citizenship, for example.
2: All sorts of questions like that, yeah. It's going to be another another adventure, I think. Yeah, that child will be, at least as the law stands now, Probably be entitled to German citizenship. We we exist in a sort of a space that hovers just ahead of the law in many places. <laughs> it's true. Um,
0: What is the smell of home to you? Interesting. I'm not going to be very original, but I think for me, it's definitely smells of a a French kitchen. So that would be a cheese plate, there would be (laughs) something boiling, a good red wine. That would be home for me. That's definitely very much linked to the hood. Very French again.
1: (laughs) Right before Tanya talked about her smell of home, her microphone stopped working. Now, her voice was caught by Anna's microphone, but the quality is not great. And since I prefer having her spontaneous answer in the heat of the moment instead of re-recording, the next section's sound is a bit poor. But bear with us, it's just for a few seconds.
2: That's really interesting because I totally assumed that that would be my answer upon first hearing the question. But... Now I hear you say the that. Sea, yeah, it's the smell of the sea. Absolutely, the mixed smell of the sea and eucalyptus leaves. That is home because you, I mean it's a classic experience of someone who has lived in Australia for a long time or an Australian person returning to, particularly Sydney because of its climate and the location of the airport relative to the sea, it's right on the water. And so as soon as you step out of that air-conditioned building, humidity mm. and the sea air and the eucalyptus smell that's carried on that humid air, and that is totally unlike no matter where you've been. So yes, that. Thank you
1: so much to both of you.
2: Thank you for anything a else. pleasure, yeah, thank you for asking us. It's really lovely to spend time thinking about this.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Blend. If you like what we do, talk about us to your multicultural friends. You can also give us five stars on your podcast app. And if you want to get a glimpse into the newest episodes every month, follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter on the website, thebigblend.co. Cheers and see you soon.